0: Time is an equally distributed resource. We have 24 hours per day, all of us. And and once invested, you can't get it back. It's gone and lost forever. So as a practicing physician, I frequently read and analyze papers that turns out to be without relevant information from my patient and me. And of course, I hate to spend that time. That is my worst investment.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive the following five free benefits. First, you get the risk reduction checklist I've created from the lessons I've learned from all my guests. Second, you get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Third, you get a 25% discount on all ASTOTS Academy courses Fourth, you get access to our Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners. And finally, you get my curated list of the top 10 episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Kim Christensen. Kim, are you ready to rock? I am. (laughs) Let me introduce you to the audience in one second. So, ladies and gentlemen, Kim Christensen. He's a family physician from Denmark with more than 30 years of clinical experience. He has researched pain medicine. He's a peer reviewer for medical journals and a former Ted Med research scholar. He is a host at the podcast Precision Evidence. He and his co-hosts go beyond the abstracts of clinical research papers looking for clinical relevance and precision of the evidence and discuss how to read, analyze, and look for pitfalls when reading about results from clinical trials. Finally, he is a co-founder of Significa, a company building a system and method to analyze clinical research for precision relevance and meaningfulness based on a grading system. My goodness, this is so necessary in this world these days. Kim, take a minute and fill in further tidbits about your life.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for having me, Andrew. I like being a physician. It's an interesting job, no day, no, not even an hour being like the previous one. I like uh, that it's an evolving business where new things come up every day and and we have to find new ways to, to treat new diseases and, and, and things we thought we did the best way we find new ways to do. So it's really, really interesting field to work with. And of course, the human relationship above all. Mm. Besides that, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a proud granddad, and I'm a passionate runner.
1: Mm. How often do you run?
0: Every second day. Wow. Wow. For my, the last my... 50 years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you've been running from the beginning, like Forrest Gump, yeah. huh?
0: Yeah, exactly. Just keep running. Keep uh, running. Yeah, not tired yet, like Forrest. And,
1: you know, some people say that, well, if you run, it could be bad for your joints, but you've been doing it for a long time. From a medical person's perspective, would you say that running is a pretty healthy thing to be doing on a consistent it, basis? It is
0: if you take care. You have to, of course, be aware of, I mean, some, some people are, are born to run, mm-hmm. I say, <laughs> then, and I guess I'm one of them. And, and, and that makes it, of course, easier. And, and, and you have to listen to your body and, and take care if you feel anything. So, so Yes. And starting mm. early, yes, that makes it probably a bit easier if you are aware of your, how your body responds to, to what you're doing.
1: Right, right. You know, I before we get into the question, I had some experience with the medical profession over the last five years. And that was when my father called me to tell me that you know my mother had had a stroke. And mm. basically, he asked me to come home and help. And... So I came home from Bangkok, flew back to North Carolina where my parents were, my mom was in a rehab hospital. And my dad and I, you know, I basically went to see my mom every day and you know spent time and tried to learn what was going on, went through all of her medications and all that stuff. And then after about five days, my dad and I were out on the golf course one day and I, he was watching me hit balls, which I'm actually not much of a golfer, but I thought, let's go do this because I know he loved that. And I even have a picture that he took of me swinging on that morning then we went to have a coffee, and then we went to have lunch. And then I said, Dad, I'll see you later. I'm going to the rehab hospital to spend the afternoon with Mom, and then put her to bed. And he said, I'll see you when you get back, son. When I, get back, when I got back, my dad had had a massive hemorrhage, and I found him oh. on a chair. And wow. basically I called the emergency services, and they got him into emergency, and then we got him to the hospital. And then every day, For about twelve days, I was shuttling between my dad in intensive care and my mother at the rehab hospital. And after about twelve or thirteen days, my dad passed away. Mm, And yeah, and you know, I learned a lot, and I had—I was forced to try to understand what was going on. You know, I don't feel sad about losing my dad because I had him all my life. He was a great dad. He was a great wife. He was a great father and you know and he went quickly and it you know i mean the truth is is that i hope i go that way too it just happens and he was with his son and he was with his daughter my sister came and you know yeah, yeah. so you know and i think what i learned too is death is a part of life but what i also found was that my mother was just overloaded with drugs and i spent time researching them being a financial analyst I know nothing really about medication. So I read everything I could about each one of these drugs. I tried to read about nutrition and I sat down with the doctor and I said, look, you know, I think that some of the side effects that she's having are, you know, causing her to need other drugs and all that. And it just was a cascade of drugs. Yeah. And when I talked to that doctor, he said, well, first of all, I didn't, I didn't give that drug. That's another doctor. You got to talk to that neurologist. And okay. So she's been on that one for four, four years now. And now I got to go talk to that guy. And then I just found that, Unraveling that was really hard. And then that doctor really came down hard on me. And I'm like, look, I know my mom has better potential than this. And I just feel like she's being drugged. And eventually the only solution I had was I brought my mom to Thailand. Five years ago, I brought her. She was taking 10 different medicines. And I slowly, I monitored her health through a, through a Fitbit device and mm-hmm. through three times a day, blood pressure, heart rate. And slowly I got her off of different medicines. And I used a lot of good... Books and knowledge about nutrition, you know, something like beetroot as an example that would decrease blood pressure. And now my mom's only on one medication, which is related to her thyroid, and it's been really healthy and brain fog has gone away. I lost trust in doctors. And I I started realizing that a lot of them also don't read a lot of this research. And, you know, maybe that's
0: part of the the, the, the challenge. And and of course, it's not just reading it, it's also uh, finding relevance in it. Which is that's, important.
1: That's a word that I really appreciate yeah. that you said, you know, in your yeah. bio about the relevance. Yeah, and I just also kind of experienced that, and particularly in Asia here, these guys, many of the doctors, look up to the U.S. system. They're being told what drugs to do. There's also a lot of restrictions that are coming down on doctors and hospitals. To say, if, if you don't, if you do not give this medication, you're going to be opened up to some other risk so it's like they can't not give the medication these days and it just it's it's interesting and so that's part of why i'm interested to have you here because i appreciate what you're doing and
0: I want the listener to, to appreciate I believe that, that your story with your mother is, is really interesting. Again, we have to be careful with one story. I mean, this is just your story, but the fact that you actually approach the doctor and, and challenge what was going on is, of course, a way to pr- protect your mother, take care of your mother, and being a caregiver.
1: Yeah. And in fact, you're already raising up one potential fallacy when we take one specific incident and then that's we try why I mention it, it. It's so
0: You have to be very careful with that, of course.
1: Exactly. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't, that's why go, have the don't go do that. No. Don't go do that. But that's an experience that I had.
0: And and, and and it's a valid experience, definitely.
1: And let me just, for the listeners out there, can you just give a, a brief explanation of what they could expect if they listened into your podcast?
0: Well, it's about we we are discussing uh, things about. Clinical relevance, how to find it and, and and what you need to look for. And and I'll talk a bit about it in, in, a, in a minute. What you need to look for and, and how you can find it. And we have uh, different ways to uh, look at that. We do get specific papers. We have been looking at some of the COVID-19 vaccine papers, of course. I mean, it's been all over the news. It was mm-hmm. obvious to, to look at that. And also methods and and, and what you can do and, and and what you can ask for. It's... For anyone interested in, in, in uh, clinical research, whether you are healthcare professionals or caregiver or patient, whatever
1: mm. so ladies and gentlemen, listen up. I really recommend that you do and what I, I'll have all the links in the show notes so that anybody that wants to follow you and listen to what you're doing, they can well, that's a great intro, and I really appreciate what you're doing and now. It's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to and then tell us your story.
0: Well, thank you, Andrew. Yeah, listening to your, by the way, great podcast, and and, uh, thinking about the question you're asking, it came to me that that we actually are investing a lot of different resources money obviously i haven't mm. con- uh, discussed this with my accountant previous to this uh, episode but but also attention you know time interest uh, even passion's feeling and I, I believe that there's much more and and my worst investment is going across many many of these We've been talking about being a physician and, and as a physician, you both have to and, and, and of course want to follow up with new information and, and discoveries, at least in your field of medicine and what's related to your daily work. Most, but not all, medical research papers are listed on Medline or the corresponding EU Medline. It's some online platforms and uh, with a new paper added every 20 seconds, day and night. Yes, that's right. Every 20 second, It's obviously impossible for anyone to keep up. Luckily, this is across all specialties and including basic research. So the reading list for the individual healthcare professional is shorter, but it's still a long one. And if you look at papers about COVID-19, which is essential for all of us, or at least most of us, mm. I was looking into how frequent a new article was published during the last year. And it was every four to five minutes. I mean, they are not all relevant and it's it's virtually impossible for anyone to keep up with that. And that is why paying interest and spending time reading papers published in a medical journal that turns out to be of no clinical relevance or meaningful to patients in healthcare is my worst investment. Mm. I mean, time is an equally distributed resource. We have 24 hours per day, all of us. and, And once invested, you can't get it back. It's gone and lost forever. So as a practicing physician, I frequently read and analyze papers that turns out to be without relevant information from my patient and me. And of course, I hate to spend that time. That is my worst investment. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good and relevant research papers being published, bringing healthcare forward, but it is still a problem. And, and of course, it's not just my time, it's also resources, both human and, and economical as well. And by clinical relevant, we talked about it before, but what I mean with clinical relevant is something a patient can relate to, not just something that is considered significant based on a statistical calculation, Mm. which is about the, the statistical calculation is about the risk of finding the outcomes by chance. And and this is, of course, important, but we also need to look at the meaningfulness and, and in the findings, put some common sense to it, if you will. Mm -hmm. And as an example, we can all relate to can a reduction in pain in a study be statistically significant without being big enough for something a human can feel. And we actually see that in, in pretty often in studies and or with another study type we call the randomized control trial or RCT where a group is getting the treatment we are investigating and another group is getting another kind of treatment or placebo. And the difference in the outcomes are indeed statistically significant, but too small to be of any relevance at all. That's what we need to challenge. And so sad to say, but it's, it's even more complicated. A medical paper is not answering the research question we really want to know, is treatment A better than treatment B? But it is, and I dare say, only an analysis of data relating to that specific population included in the trial and how the trial was set up and run. That is why that group, that study group, and how the trial was run and set up is of crucial importance for the relevance and the meaningfulness of the findings. So we need to look at all that. Mm. And if you're not in the medical field, you will probably suppose that all published research is relevant and meaningful. But that's not so, not even if published in a high-ranking journal, you know, the best and the rest. And furthermore, most readers only read, and you mentioned that before, the abstract or perhaps only a conclusion or recap and have no chance of knowing if the findings are indeed relevant at the point of care. Mm. So that's why we started the podcast Precision Evidence to focus on clinical relevance. And as you mentioned, we go beyond the abstracts of the medical papers. We look at how to analyze, evaluate, discuss how to help and improve research being clinical relevant and much more. And we have also created some tools for the listeners to help find clinical relevant information. Mm. I mean, this is not just important for healthcare professionals and patients, but f- for payers, for journalists, for politicians, and many others. And I believe for anyone who might be a patient or a caregiver in the future, and that's all of us. Mm. So at the Precision Evidence, we see ourselves as the medical research BS detective, that is BS for best science, of course. <laughs>
1: You know, one question I have about this is that, you know, if you go back in time and you listen to stories about, let's say, cities in America and one city has a huge fire and they ask for the fire trucks to come from another city, they come and find out, well, their valves don't fit, the threads on their hoses don't fit the fire hydrants from the other city. And many years ago during that time, they decided, well, why don't we standardize the fire hydrants across the country? And then they well, it used to be that railroads were different sizes. And then they said, why don't we standardize railroads? What is happening about standardizing clinical research? Is there something already going on with that? Or is it just like impossible to do that?
0: We are all individuals. It's difficult to standardize. (laughs) No, but what we are, one of the points we are making in precision evidence, and I'd like to bring it forward here as well, is that we want researchers to, when they are uh, evaluating the the outcomes, relate to clinical relevance in some point and preferably Mm. by doing so before starting the data collection. Say, when we have the research, this is what we'll see as clinically relevant. Helping the readers, the patients, whoever will be relating to this research, see if it is clinically relevant. And then if you have that, you have the focus on the clinical relevance and you can see if your fire hose can connect with, with what comes out there and thereby is this relevant for me? You have to, of course, the fact about the statistical significance is this by chance is important, but it's, it's not the only thing that's important. It's equally important to know if this makes sense for, for mm-hmm. the patient. Mm-hmm.
1: I, had an right experience, I had an experience when I was doing my PhD, which I went to do a PhD in finance in China when I was 47. And I knew exactly what I wanted to write on and, and all that. So I was pretty, you know, I, I was pretty, I enjoyed it, let's say. But I met a lot of young men and women that were there that were, you know, trying to figure out what they were going to write on. And I also also felt like, at the age of 26, to go do a PhD and do some sort of academic research and try to figure out what to do. I mean, many people are just following whatever their supervisors are saying or whatever. But you know, then you also find that you know you want to do something that's relevant but also not been touched, and that's not easy to find. And so you ended up finding that there was a lot of people that would say. They would talk about, let's say, the illiquidity of small stocks in the Nigerian stock market as an example, a very small stock market and a very tiny pocket of the stock market. And in that case, you can say that was original research. But I think that hits to what you're talking about is the relevance. But you know, how relevant is that to the body of research on the stock market as an example? Is that what you mean by relevance?
0: Exactly. Can you relate to not just the outcomes, but also to the way the study was set up? Could you be, your patient be in in that study at all? Why were some people excluded from the study? There might be a good reason for that. It could be safety, which of Mm. course is is Mm. important. But but why was uh, people with depression or diabetes or whatever excluded from that? Not necessarily to be suspicious, but just consider why. Can yep. you can you come up with a reason why? Was it to make it more easy to make it more easier to get the result, the desired outcome? You want to get the statistical significance. It might be, it could be for mm-hmm. some very good medical reason, but you have to consider why.
1: Mm-hmm. So maybe you can kind mm-hmm. of summarize. And that's
0: why you should go down to, to the inclusion and exclusion criteria every time, and that's what we talk about: precision evidence, the precision of of the findings, the precision for the individual patient and thereby the clinical relevance.
1: Mm-hmm. So maybe you can just talk to us about the lessons that you've learned from this, let's call it, I like the word that you used at the beginning, I wrote it down, the allocation of your resources, right? Yeah. So tell us, what, did you, what have you learned from this, particularly thinking about a young, young man or woman, a young doctor, a young researcher, a person that really does wanna make sure that they, they're not losing that time, what, what have you yeah. learned?
0: I have learned that I have to be mm, careful about how I, how I spend my time. I have developed some method to to screen abstracts. And that's what we also have in, in the precision evidence. Mm-hmm. Screen for, for clinical relevance. So I don't have to waste my time reading something that's out of my interest and which I cannot relate to. Yep. We don't know. Actually, we do not know how much research that is clinically relevant. Of course, that, as I mentioned before, will come down to the individual. But from a more broad perspective, we don't know that. It's estimated around half of it and and some in in and. I believe it was 2009, there was a study published based on a model that said that 15%, only 15% of resources spent on clinical research provide relevant information. And they were including studies that never was published and things like that. So, mm. so actually we do not know because we then had to read all the papers and evaluate them and, and, and then make the calculation. And while we're doing that, a lot of research would have been published as well. So we will never know that. But it's important to, to be aware before reading the paper what is considered relevant based Mm -hmm. on on what you you can expect from from the information. And also be suspicious when you're presenting with information, being in the news or or medical news when you get, I mean, physicians, healthcare professionals get a lot of of information, you know, headlines and recaps and stuff, stuff like that. And hopefully, always with a with a link. And if it's not, hmm, why not? Why couldn't I go see the paper right away? Mm. But if it be suspicious and 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 look up for the details and and have a method to to do that for clinical relevance, nice. that's that's indeed what I've learned and and do based on this. Mm. And I read a lot of papers and a lot of going into the math and analyzing it.
1: And you obviously enjoy that, which is exciting,
0: do. I do. Yeah.
1: So let me summarize some things I take away. I I wrote down two things as you were speaking. And, you know, as you said, we all have the same 24 hours. We have a certain amount of resources. But what, you know, I've gone out and uh, every time I go to speak in front of audiences, I ask people and I want the listeners to think about the answer to this question right now. I want you to think about when you go to work and your typical work day, how many hours are you really productive? You may be at work eight hours. You may be at work 10 hours you may have some travel time, but how many hours are you really productive? Well, the answer to that question that I get is two to four hours. Mm. And then the next thing that I say is that some people will claim that it's six or eight hours, but the fact is, is that the brain's capacity to maintain a high level of intensity just doesn't exist to that number of hours. We do exhaust our, for those people that that can't stop eating at night, like myself, we have ego depletion or willpower depletion. And so the end result of that is that we have a certain amount. And and then if you think about that, we don't actually have 24 hours a day. We really have four hours of what I would call concentrative, creative, powerful Mm -hmm. time. And so when you talk about the idea of, kind of losing resources, losing that allocation. You know, every day I think about those four hours. And when I started my own business many years ago, basically all I did is I started waking up at about four in the morning. And I just went to work in my office at home at 5 a.m. And from Mm. 5 a.m. until 9 a.m., I got those four hours. And I didn't take any calls, I didn't take any emails, I only, and I planned the night before, what am I gonna work on? I still do that today. And every single morning, that's what I do. So I just wanna highlight to the listener that you know what Kim's talking about is really about the allocation of your resources and that limited amount of real creative, powerful energy. The second thing that I, yeah. yeah, the second thing I wrote down is that having been an analyst all my career as a financial analyst, Basically, particularly as a head of research, I would be a strategist and I would write every week, I would have a report that I would put out at the end of the week, and I'd send it out to all the clients. And I'd start off the week really excited, I'm gonna look at this and that, and then you know I start doing my research and then, and then it starts to go off track. And then I start to realize that, ah, it's a dead end. I'm looking at some numbers. I thought there was gonna be some relationship, but there is no relationship, it's a dead end. And now I've got to rethink it and I've got to go through it. And I would say that as a financial analyst, I would say that maybe 60, 40 to 60% of my time is pursuing dead ends. Where you think you have a hypothesis of what you're going to find and what you find is something very different. And you may find it's just of no interest or of no value to you. You know, Sometimes you find that it is of value. And that's where I've also come to realize that dead ends are part of the research process Mm. and so you just kind of reminded me that yes we have to be efficient in allocating our time but when we're in the field of research we have to know that we have to go down these blind alleys and investigate a bit you can never completely get rid of that so those are two things that i took away is there anything you would add to that
0: no I, i totally agree and of course we have to to have these research if we're not having the I mean, we have to, to cross the borders to find what's relevant and what's meaningful. But mm. we have to look at that. And what, what I feel missing is, is the focus on, on the relevance of the outcomes or mm. the research in total.
1: Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I've noticed also these days is that it's, it's hard. I mean, I think the f- framework of the scientific method and critical thinking and spotting fallacies, you know, you immediately spotted a potential fallacy that i'm going to talk to the audience about what i did with my mom in a very specific case that you can't necessarily generalize about but i'm just curious from your perspective what do you think about how important it is and what's happening with the world these days are we getting better are we getting worse at applying the scientific method and not being fooled by you know all kinds of stuff
0: i think there's an increasing focus on on the relevance but the tsunami of medical research—it's—it's it's difficult, and and it depends on where you look at it. If you look into the media, it healthcare is good stuff in in mm. the media, especially if you can put the word COVID in somewhere into that, or perhaps something about food or even coffee. Then, then you are probably good to be a headline or clickbait or something like that. You have <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> coffee. We, we're just toasting here and now, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those <laughs> for that months. are listening, we're toasting coffee. Yeah, that's great. So. That, that is good stuff. No, w- what I believe is that we are somehow getting better, but the way the the, the online community can share information, good and bad, mm-hmm. is being a problem somehow. Because how can you know if the if if you can trust that source? How can you know if you can? I mean, if you look at press releases, try to to look at a press release. Something you you, you pick a piece you pick up somewhere in the blog mm-hmm. or whatever in, in in the media, and Google a phrase from from that. And in quotation mark, and you will see it over and over and over again, being the same sentence quoted. Exact same. So exact the same, telling you that that the press release, whether it's from a pharmaceutical company, from academia, whatever it's from, had been published and, and distributed without uh, passing the brain of anyone on that travel.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something so, so, we, we see that in the stock market too, where companies release... Mm-hmm. And they're always going to release positive information about how their earnings are going to rise and whatever. And then you just see that they're feeding the, the propaganda into the media. And I always have to tell young analysts that I'm training, you know, be careful, this is written by the company and they're trying to get yeah. you to feel positive about buying their particular stock.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's the same.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, thinking about a young man or woman, who's kind of starting out and they like what you're doing and they want to do that, what action, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Making the analysis and and, and force yourself to think of the usefulness of the findings, not just believing that it's correct because it was in whatever journal it was in, but that, that you need to relate to, is this relevant for what I'm seeing? And of course, it's an ongoing process that, by the way, it never stops because you'll always, every day, learn something new, meet a new challenge, some other ways to, to combine things and see if, if, instead of just doing, just stop and think, is this relevant, Can, is this meaningful? And discuss it with the patient, is this what you want? Is this what we're, the, the road we're taking? Mm-hmm. And and is the research behind all this built in a way that is relatable from a from my perspective as a physician, uh, whatever healthcare professional you are, and of course for the patient, mm. and from healthcare in general, yeah.
1: Yeah, the other thing I you know it makes me think also about digging down below the headlines because we're so inundated with headlines. When COVID happened, what I did is in Thailand, I went into the news and they were giving out information on each of the persons that died in the beginning. And we only had 20 people. And for for 16 months, we've had a total of about 100 people. Now Mm. it's accelerated, but still relative to a population of 70 million. So I decided to just get the data for each one of those 20 and they, they provided a lot of data and I could calculate the average age and I could say, hmm, okay, that's pretty old. I'd say, you know, that's my mom's age, so mm-hmm. I need to think about that, but it's not really my age. And then I looked at comorbidities and I started calculating, okay, what was the average comorbidity? And I found that, you know, the average person in that group had, let's say, you know, three to five. Now, a group of 20 is not a great representation. But then they stopped publishing the data, so I couldn't do it anymore at that level. And I couldn't find it anymore. But the point that I think is valuable is just to stop and, and ask some questions and do some calculations. A simple thing that I did too, you know, I mean, I'm not a, I have no medical experience at all, but I do love to explore data. And I just looked at, I did a ranking of countries by taking, you know, uh, World Health Organization's rankings of obesity yeah. and of heart disease and. The degree of hypertension and all that and then i ranked countries by their what i would call healthiness and then i looked at their COVID death rates and what i found was you know a clear enough relationship that i could say okay maybe thailand is really low body fat and not that not that many disease Mm -hmm. and maybe that could explain why we had less deaths and then that helped me to kind of think things through so I really want to encourage people to just dig in. With, in this world, where there's this flood of of news articles coming out, in fact, if you just go one step lower down, you know, and you look down, you'll find that there there is some data, there is some stuff that you can try to you know understand more deeply.
0: And what you did there was actually creating a hypothesis. You had an, this idea: is, is this correlated? Which It's not the same as there's a causality between it. So you have to make further investigations to look into that.
1: Definitely. And I was just kind of, I I would say, as I said in in the beginning, I don't have any medical experience. So I was just kind of playing around with data and just, I wasn't under the scrutiny of someone like you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But there's limits, right? When you look at it, you may say, "Yeah, well, oh, yeah. I see something that but, you know that but, looks like it's related, but in fact, it's not related
0: at all." Yeah, and that is the way to start it, as that process.
1: Mm, mm. And also, one of the things that I've learned over the the last year is the difference between a hypothesis and a theory. Mm. And you know, you identified the the word hypothesis, meaning, and I, I think about a hypothesis is just an, an an idea of an explanation about something, and this is. You know, my hypothesis is my explanation of what I think it could be. Let's yeah. investigate that. But that's very different from a theory where we have a lot of support that has begun to really support that theory, where that hypothesis moves to that next stage, I guess. Would that, and that's I when we do it, right? the research,
0: start the research, set up the model for, for how we're going to do that. Then we have a theory about the causality between those two. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So lots of lessons. All right. Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: To increase the awareness of clinical relevance, the medical community is a conservative one. And, and of course it will take some time, but one step at a time. So definitely to in- increase that awareness and make it better for healthcare professionals, for patients, for healthcare in general.
1: Mm-hmm. And tell the listeners the best place to go to follow you and just to stay in touch yeah, with what you're doing
0: there's obviously the podcast precision evidence which you can find wherever you listen to to podcasts yep. and, and right. follow it there otherwise there are websites precision-evidence.com and you can find me on twitter and you can find me on linkedin i believe you will put some links in in yep. uh, the show notes there. and i'll be more than happy to connect
1: perfect well listeners yep, yep go ahead
0: yeah, and I'll be glad if you mentioned you heard this podcast as well.
1: Yeah, just mention that you heard him on the podcast so he knows so you're yeah. not a spammer. <laughs>
0: no, that's not what I'm afraid of. I will uh, connect.
1: Yep, yep. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, reduce risk and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com and I look forward to seeing you there as we conclude kim i want to thank you again for coming on the show and on behalf of a starts academy i hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment do you have any parting words for the audience
0: first of all thank you for having me and for for that there's a lot of good clinical research out there and we have to remember that and i would not say that you should be suspicious but curious and ask questions about the meaningful and relevance of the outcomes and if nothing else please remember that from from this podcast don't go with individual stories be careful with with what you see in the news and follow precision evidence podcast
1: fantastic and that's a wrap on another great story to help us create grow and protect our well fellow risk takers this is your worst podcast host andrew Stott, saying i'll see you on the upside